Well, we've got two readings this evening, and the first one is an Old Testament reading from Exodus chapter 32, which if you've got a church Bible, you'll find on page 90. I'm not going to read the whole of the chapter, I'll be summarising some of it. Um, Just to give you the context of this uh, episode here, um, Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving God's laws and commands for instruction of his people. Meanwhile, the people have been getting a bit impatient uh, for him to return. And uh, this is what happens. Verse 1, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods of Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Then we have Moses seeking the favour of the Lord his God, pleading with him for two reasons. One, what the Egyptians would say when they see him bringing these people out and then destroying them. Um, And secondly, remembering the covenant that he has made with his people. And then it says in verse 14, the Lord relented. And did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses then goes down the mountain. He sees what's going on. He sees the calf, the dancing. He takes the calf. He burns it in the fire. Grinds it to powder. Scatters it. Makes the Israelites drink it. And he says to Aaron in verse 21. What did these people do to you? That you led them into such great sin. And so Moses sees what is going on, he sees the people running wild, he sees that Aaron had let them get out of control and become a laughing stock to their enemies. And so in verse 26 he says, he challenges them and says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rally to him. And then he tells them, gives them instructions to kill those who have rejected God. And that's what they they did. And about 3,000 people died that day. And then Moses said in verse 29, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, 
But now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written, offering to be a substitute for them. But uh, unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, his substitute wouldn't be enough. And the Lord replies to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Our second reading comes from 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. And interestingly, this was the reading I had in my Bible notes this morning. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. (coughs) Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This is the penultimate um, in the series that's the last but one, Um, in uh, priorities in a nameless world. We've been highlighting various issues in tonight. We're just looking at one thing, and that is holiness. Uh, When some young people were asked by their teacher in the class, um, what what does it mean, what is it to be holy? Uh, One um, young boy in this class said uh, to be holy is to be um, a dead clergyman. Uh, what he really meant was that uh, you, if, you, if you go to St. Mary's, there's uh, 
um, somebody who's lying horizontal, hands like this, and sort of lying in state. It's the only way to be holy. You live in church, and uh, you're free from temptation. Or indeed, uh, as the heading that you have in front of you, a passion for holiness during the funeral of uh, perhaps the most uh, popular pope for at least a hundred years, it, uh, it would appear, Pope John Paul II. Um, devout mourners, and indeed some cardinals as well, held up banners. It was unprecedented during this period of mourning and uh, during his funeral in particular um, they had uh, placards saying Santo Subito, Santo Subito and they were chanting which literally of course those of you familiar with Latin would know that it's sainthood now sainthood now make the Pope a saint now don't wait for another hundred years or something like that Well, they wanted to move swiftly to canonize this popular pontiff. But as we understand the Bible, if the Pope was not a saint already, then it's too late. It's too late. That is a big problem. Because to be a saint, or... The same word that's used to be sanctified or made holy means to be set apart as distinctive. Apart from our former um, sinful way of life, to be blameless before Jesus Christ. I want to put something to you that uh, I hope will stretch you to think um, and that you'll stay with me. This morning, even before the sermon, someone was sleeping and purring. It's true. I won't say who it was. And I said, uh, did, did you miss the hour? I talked to him at the door. Oh, he said, I was up all night. I said, I'm sure that sleep did you a lot of good. Uh, but I could hear him purring. That was before the sermon. What hope is there after? Huh? Well, stay with me on this. We're thinking about being holy, okay? We're talking about being holy. And Christians often talk about sanctification as a process. You are saved instantly. You confess Christ, you are his. But the process of working out is ongoing. That's how we understand sanctification. It's a process. Conversion is instant. Sanctification is constant and ongoing. Interestingly, however, uh, and I, yeah, if you've got your Bibles open and we're going to look in 1 Corinthians 10, just turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 6. I'd just like to provoke some thought here because it's so much um, an important part of this theme of holiness. So this is 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul gives, gives a list of all sorts of things that people were into in Corinth before they came to faith. And uh, 
you know, he, he lists out, uh, where, where do we have it? Start somewhere. Verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual or the immoral or idolaters or idolaters, nor male prostitutes or homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, so on and so forth, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And surprise, surprise, horrors, horrors, that is what some of you were. Past tense. That's what they were into. So there's hope for us, isn't there? But look, but you were washed, past tense, you were sanctified, past tense. Does that make sense? So that whilst it is, of course, true that it is a process, nevertheless, it is something vital that has happened. We are declared to be holy in the sight of God because of his work of grace in our lives. Sanctification, in that sense, is something that has already happened to anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. So, I would say to you, in contrast to Pope John Paul II, that our, our Lord's canonizing process, if we say that, is considerably quicker and safer than all the cardinals of Rome. You're in good hands with the Lord Jesus. Santo subito. We are. It's already happened. We are saints now. So, that with that introduction, and I'll try to keep moving on this, what you have in the reading that Neil brought to us, and subsequently the one that um, Jackie read as well, I guess we could say tonight that the reading of Exodus 32 was as much as remote from the Corinthians as it would be from us. And yet Paul uses it as an illustration to emphasize this business about holiness. So what you have, and uh, if we can look in this, and we won't look at it anymore, just by way of uh, getting a, a lead in, turn to Exodus 32, the one that uh, Neil read to us, and just see this. Make this connection and then we'll come to the New Testament. Then we'll apply it to ourselves. So what we have in Exodus 32, and that's page 90 if you're using the church Bibles. What you have here is the account of the people of God at Sinai. Most remarkable thing. They've been delivered from their captivity. And Moses goes to the mountain of Sinai where the law was given which would govern the people and has had such a profound impact on societies ever since. And so we take up the reading, um, 32 and verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and put him under enormous pressure. Come, make us gods. In other words, you know, what do we want? We want gods. When do we want it? Now. We're not prepared to wait. That's, we, we, you hear that sort of thing like as if it's new. It's innate within us. That's what we are like. And uh, Aaron is under pressure. And here's, just follow this through these events. So the people of God, uh, the people of God uh, give way to idolatry. Uh, Aaron is under pressure. And because of that, he makes a compromise. You have that in verses 5 and 6. Interestingly, did you notice he asked for the young men and women to take their gold earrings off? He thought that was new young fellows, whichever ear they wear. Um, they had them then. There you go. As mean it's right, but they just had them. I always thought you should notice that. I, um, yeah. 
and then you have the Lord in his indignation. Look in verses 7 and 9. Uh, he is not indifferent to this at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because the people whom you, look at interesting, isn't it? You brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. And verse 8, they've been quick to turn away from what I, I expressly commanded them and made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf, which is uh, this sort of fertility cult and, and so on. Um, and uh, then you have Moses who poses the question in verse 21. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such Great sin. Answer me. And here is the classic fudge. The monumental compromise. And look what Aaron says. Can you believe it? Look at this. Do not be angry, my Lord. This is Aaron talking to Moses. Just, could you believe it? You know how prone these people are to evil. The blame game. We're good at that. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came the calf. Just like that. I mean. What a reply. What a classic fudge. What's the application? The application is this. If you want to, if I want to, you can rationalize anything. So easy to do. We can justify our sinful actions. We can justify our unbelieving attitudes. And like Aaron, we can believe in our minds. At this point, he's not a heretic. But he is given to idolatry. Believing the right things and yet living in denial of it. Well, what is the corrective to this? And we think now more particular of holiness. Well, just as faith and works go together, they are, if you like, um, the classic inseparable twins. Let me picture, give you a picture in your mind. Here is somebody in a rowing boat. And he's using one oar. And what he's doing is just using one and he's going round and round. Or he, he, he puts that one down, he uses this one, he goes round and round. But if you get the two working together, you're going to make progress. Okay? The, 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 the Christian who thinks that there's a conflict between faith and works is misunderstood in terms of his faith. They are inseparable twins. They go together. Well, that's obvious. But so is this salvation and holiness. Some people think, oh yeah, I've come to faith, but I'm going to go for holiness later on in life, but meanwhile, I want to have a good time. Well, the classic, I think it was, um, who is it, St. Augustine, make me holy, but not yet. Uh, I want to enjoy myself. As if, of course, it's the, it's the thinking, uh, people, if I'm going to be holy, I can't enjoy myself. I need to be like a dead clergyman, lying in state where I'm free from all temptation. Of course, the whole point of holiness is that in this world in which we live, we can prove that the Lord will be with us with all the temptations that we face. And that's the big challenge today. Right. So just like, final illustration, a bird in flight, 
Not with a broken wing, but with two wings, constantly adjusting to the variable winds and gales, saw the Christian. Salvation and holiness is a bird in flight, two wings. I think we would have to say that sadly, holiness is, is almost a pipe dream, perhaps for some Christian people. It certainly is a word that's not very popular. It's certainly not a theme that uh, people find attractive. It's interesting, during the, um, the revival under uh, John Charles Wesley, that they linked with uh, a, a German community called the Moravian people. And you know, in terms of 100 years, there was a prayer meeting that never stopped. It's hard to get a prayer meeting for one hour today. For 100 years, read the history of the Moravian people. And they, they worked on the basis of 24 hours, prayed round and shared in these communities for 100 years. And the basis of it was a conviction that God wanted them to be a distinctive people, wanted them to be holy. So this isn't something for obscurantists or for people who are super spiritual. The holiness movement has had a remarkable uh, impact on people. The Keswick movement, which has gone on and is around the world, is a classic example of that. So there are two extremes when we think about holiness. The first is this, well, quite frankly, it's impossible. Here we are, well, you know, look what I am, look, what, look, look at the world in which you look at the films, look at the books, are you, look at, are you suggesting, are you serious? Holiness? It's impossible. And it might actually be enforced by uh, negative examples of, of people who have a negative view that holiness actually is, you don't do that, you can't say that, you can't go there. And some people were brought up on that. So that's the one example of an extreme. It's impossible, and you've had bad role models. The other one is where people will say that they've had an experience in holiness and they are instantly sanctified. Being filled with God's Spirit, had an encounter with the living God, and from now on, there are no temptations that could touch them. When you hear that, just observe quietly and see what happens. Even though it is said with sincerity. Indeed, John Wesley taught for a while, he had to stop this teaching and, and publicly confess that he had this teaching out of balance. It was this. He reasoned like this. Just suppose, he would say, that I could go one hour without sinning. Wouldn't that be something? But then if I could go one day, and you know, well, you know what I'm coming to, one month? Or I could reach a particular state whereby I could be impervious to all temptation. And he realized that it was a wrong view of holiness that he was perpetrating. Nevertheless, it was done with sincerity, a genuine desire to be filled with God's Spirit. So those are the two extremes. I would put to you a better way that is the encouragement of Scripture. Now this is the point. And with this we come to, uh, we, we step into a, a quicker gear. And it's this. Why was it that the Apostle Paul chose 1 Corinthians, uh, cho chose um, Exodus 32 
to write to the church in Corinth where we find it in 1 Corinthians 10. And if you turn to this now, um, we will look at this together. For the rest of the, of the, the sermon, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. Why does Paul give to this quite um, cultured uh, uh, community of people uh, this brief lesson from the book of Exodus 32. Indeed, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13 doesn't have real meaning apart from its Old Testament roots. It's, it's nothing profound, it's just this. Because the same thing that happened to the church at Corinth, the same besetting sins, the same temptations, was true at Corinth as it was for the children of Israel, as indeed it is for us. And there's a powerful incentive in the encouragement of the Scriptures. We can be disqualified. We can disqualify ourselves from our calling. And simply do this, just like the children of Israel, that for 40 years, they just went round and round, like a dog chasing its tail, and getting nowhere, and achieving nothing. And a whole generation for, for the cause of God is lost entirely. Read the accounts of that. But that's not just true for Jewish people who've come through the Red Sea. It's true for us as well. Sort of filling in time. in a sort of spiritual wilderness. So what I'd like to give you is three perils and one promise. Peril number one, verses six and seven, there you have it, idolatry. Idolatry. The worship of self, essentially, although it's a projected, in this case, a, a, a projected a golden image. So verses six and seven, uh, we, we read this. Now, here it is. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. And it's a quotation from Exodus 32. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up and to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died under the judgment of God. When we put something or someone in front of God, we become idolaters. And it's a very fine line. You remember uh, Cowper, William Cowper, who, who tried twice to commit suicide under a depressive state. He was a very godly and a holy man of God. Suffered all his life with depression. And yet on one occasion wrote, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. And we mustn't think, well, of course, it's because we've got the media and all this sort of thing. It is what's in our hearts is the issue. We may not, like Aaron, sculpt a, a, a golden calf and project ourselves onto that. We may not do that. Or a Buddha or something. 
but our idols are just as real. And this innate tendency is just as real. Idolatry. Secondly, immorality. Legislation changes. Our view on sexuality and all of that is, is in a ferment. But what do we read here? Verse 8 and 9. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. The Israelites brought these cultural practices, pagan practices, from Egypt. And they said, well, if it's okay for the Egyptians, it's okay for us. And um, they would say things like, but you know, times have changed. You hear people say that as if they've never changed before. Times have changed. One preacher once said this, that in one day Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. In one day. And it took the Lord 40 years to take Egypt out of the children of Israel. Such was this process in becoming holy and sanctifying. So here you have it. They brought these pagan sins with them, sexual uh, rituals, uh, pornography, adultery, homosexuality, things that were hard to break, that became a lifestyle. Sin not only destroys relationships, it seems to offer everything and then it takes it away, but it distorts our perspective. We see people as things, not people. And so it's possible now to have recreational sex rather than relational. And that's the context here. So you have idolatry, you have immorality. And what's the subject? Yes, holiness. Seems amazingly light years from it. But bear that in mind, sin not only destroys relationships but it distorts our perspective of ourselves and of the Lord. Thirdly, this is, a, this is a surprise. You think, these are big sins, aren't they? These are not little ones. And yet, look at this one. This is a surprise. Grumbling. I mean, that's almost like a flea bite next to some of this. And yet, why, why does he do this? Look at verse 10. And do not grumble. Come on. Why this constant whinging? Do not grumble. It becomes a sort of a lifestyle. Some people become happy when they're unhappy. Do you see that? Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. And there you give given to you. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age, the ages has come. What a surprise to put that in at that point. This isn't just uh, to have a moan where you feel better, get it off your chest sort of thing, or to mumble, but a sustained mindset that is constantly at variance with yourself and with people and with the Lord. 
It's to be the sort of person whom you're with. And the only thing you can be sure about is that they'll have a mega whinge all the time. Now, clearly, there is a place and value for constructive criticism. Of course, that's how we grow. But when we lack holiness, this essential Christ-likeness, it is so easy to do what Aaron did when he tells Moses, it's the people, you know what they like, they're a stiff-necked people, what do you expect from them? And we push the blame onto them. And so you see in, in verse 12, he then says this, So, if you, are th- if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You don't fall in this area. Well, that's a surprising sermon in a way, isn't it, about holiness? Because it's, it's get those things out of the way so that now you can experience the, the good and gracious work of His Spirit in our lives. So we come to one promise that we can close with. And there you have it in verse 13. And uh, I know some of you have put this to memory. If, if you can do that, I suggest that this would be the top um, verse to put to memory. Perhaps this should be one of our verse for the year. And there it is. In the light of all that, and you think, what hope is there for me? What a wonderful promise there is. And it, it resonates with, with realism and hope. And here it is. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? Oh, I know what I'm like, and I know my besetting sins, and, and I know this is, this is almost a pipe dream. I could not be holy. Hey, wait a minute. You are no different to anybody else. It's a lovely promise, isn't it? And the promise, of course, is in the context of these big things. Idolatry, immorality, grumbling, discontent, the blame game. Daily temptation, snapping at our heels. And the way of holiness is not for you and I to say, okay, I'm going to sign up and from now on I'm going to live in a monastery. No, you don't need to take those desires with you. But in this world, as you rub shoulders with people and as you face these temptations, the wonder of the grace of God, more than you might realize, that he is at work in you. And often these temptations, real though they are, can be a source of strengthening you. And by the way, can also be a source of you encouraging other younger people in particular, rather than criticizing them, rather than grumbling about them. That's the way of holiness. I say to you in the authority of the Bible, not my experience or church history, or the great heroes of the past, that holiness is gloriously possible. I have the authority of the Bible to say so. Gloriously possible. And positive. 
and something that is wonderfully attractive. And it's a foretaste of the good life. The good and bountiful blessing of the Lord in our lives. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And isn't it a surprise that Paul should use that in such a different culture? And I guess uh, Exodus 32 is light years away from our thinking. And yet we essentially are the same. And God's spirit is the same. And his power is the same. And the struggle is the same. And ultimately the goal is the same when we shall see him and be like him. Sainthood now? Yes, now. And you don't need the cardinals. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. 